attacks, that's the number one killer. This is the thing that most people are going to die from. You aren't invincible no matter how fit you are for men and women in the U.S. I mean, that's yeah, real. My guest today is quite literally lucky to be alive. It's okay, just watch this. His name is Timothy O'Donnell, and he is a professional long course triathlete with over 50 podium finishes. Timothy is the 2009 ITU long distance world champion. And Tim O'Donnell from the USA. He placed second at the 2019 Ironman World Championships in Kona. I'm so humbled and honored, thank you. He is a humble man, he's a gentleman, and Tim O'Donnell, second place. Timothy's impressive 20 year athletic journey, and more importantly, his life nearly came to a tragic end when in 2021, he suffered a Widowmaker heart attack in the middle of a half Ironman race. You know, I asked myself, am I gonna die? Two children, Isabel and Finn, and Finn was only eight weeks old at that mm -hmm. point. So. Cannot wait to give Rini and the kids hugs. It's gonna change my perspective on life, that's for sure. Somehow, Timothy was able to finish that race, placing 11th, which is absolutely insane. Life is precious and it goes by quickly. We discuss his heart attack, of course, his life and career as a pro triathlete. We discuss his experience at the Naval Academy and his tenure as a Naval officer, advice for amateur athletes, and tons more. Timothy's story is truly inspiring. I was honored and grateful to have him here to share it with us. Before we dive in, let's acknowledge the awesome organizations that make this show possible. We're brought to you today by a very exciting brand new sponsor, Go Brewing. I am sober, I don't drink. And I devoted so many episodes of this podcast to the unreal benefits of an alcohol-free lifestyle. Why? Because even if you don't have issues with booze and suds, no amount of alcohol is good for you. At a minimum, it wreaks havoc on your sleep and produces a hangover that destroys your energy, your mood, and your focus. At worst, it turns your whole life upside down. But no longer does that mean you have to break up with your favorite brew because my pals at Go Brewing are making all your favorite brews, minus the alcohol, fewer calories, and more productive tomorrows. It's not every day that I get the privilege to witness the inception of a company collaborating with our podcast, but that's exactly what happened with Go Brewing. I'm gonna tell you this story. A few years back, I spoke at this event in Illinois, fittingly named Go, and it turns out that that very day catalyzed Joe, the founder, to start his own NA beer company, Go Brewing. I had no idea about any of this until I bumped into Joe at Jesse Itzler's Running Man event the other month in Georgia. And he shared this story with me. I savored his fare in all its varieties and deeply moved by the mission and what he shared with me and just impressed with the insane taste and quality of his alcohol-free concoctions. I wanted to help share the discovery. Made with natural ingredients, faithful to traditional beer styles, Go Brewing has an impressive lineup of delicious, small batch, craft, alcohol-free brews, all without added sugar or artificial processing. My favorite is their double IPA, not just another story, but basically you just really can't go wrong because everything they make is brewed to perfection, worthy of trying yourself, which you can now do at gobrewing.com. That's gobrewing.com and use the code RICHROLL for 15% off your first purchase. Okay, 
So here it is. This is me and Timothy O'Donnell. Speaking of uh, Greg Bennett, we have him to thank for getting us together. The great, very handsome and successful, accomplished Greg Bennett. Such a great guy. Been uh, definitely a mentor role for me over the years as well. Uh Been lucky to have some guys like that around me. It's cool to see him kind of step into the podcast thing and uh, and really kind of embrace it. Um, I listened to the episodes that you guys did together and um, it's cool what he's building there. And it's great and I appreciate him connecting us. I mean, obviously I'm familiar with your story. I've followed your career for for many, many years. And uh, it's just, you know, we were chatting a little bit before the podcast, like what happened to you isn't that uncommon. And yet the facts of of what kind of transpired are so extreme that it makes this, it makes for just this insane story. So let's just like out of the gate, like get it out there, right? Like you had a Widowmaker heart attack yep. in the middle of a half Ironman race. <laughs> It's like the most insane thing. It, yeah, and I and I finished the race. I do not recommend um, finishing the <laughs> finishing right. the race or your workout if you're having symptoms of a heart attack. That's for sure. Just for context, uh, you're at the you know the tip of the spear of elite Ironman professional triathlete performance. You've had every iteration between like second and ninth, I think at, at, at the Ironman World Championships, like second, third, fifth, like, I don't know, not 10th, not first, <laughs> right? I don't know. Pretty close, Too many, yeah. you know, you've, you, how many times, you've raced there 10 times, nine times? 10 times, yeah. 10 times. Um, many times like the fastest American, your best performance in 2019, uh, finishing second. Second to Jan, yep. Correct. And only American to go under eight hours? Yep, still the only. Right. Only one. So, and and being like 39 at the time, right? Yep. Older, uh, on the older side of things. Um, and then the following season, you're in this half Ironman race in Miami, which was like on a, on like a, um, the bike course was on like a- The NASCAR. A, yeah, the, on the NASCAR, NASCAR thing. Yeah. It's all, and it's streamed, right? There's video footage yeah. of all of this. In addition to you like having a vlog about the whole thing, which is unbelievable. You're pushing like 300 Watts and you start to experience symptoms. So like, I wanna like walk me through this entire yeah. thing. So uh, I'll just rewind a little bit yeah. because, you know, Finished 2019 race of my life, second to the Ironman World Championship to Jan Frodeno, and I'm excited. The goat, yep, the goat, and um, I wouldn't I wouldn't argue against that one. That's it's, he's got a strong argument. <laughs> so, you know, COVID hits and kind of 2020 shuts down, right. and I had actually started getting uh, symptoms earlier in 2020. Uh, we got back from Australia. Rudy and I both got really sick. That was the beginning of February 2020. No one really knew what. COVID was yet, especially in the US over in uh, Australia, it was a little more prevalent just because of its proximity to China. Mm. Uh, and I started getting like chest fluttering and all of a sudden it started to get kind of hard to breathe when I was swimming. So I'd actually gone um, in 2020 and, and ran some tests. I'd done a stress test, uh, done um, echocardiograms and things like that. And the juxtaposition of what they found versus how they saw me as a professional athlete and my fitness level didn't raise too many alarms. Mm. But, uh, you know, I hit the start line in, at Challenge Miami in, in uh, March of 2021. And I kind of knew something was off. Um, so I had some trouble breathing. And I actually said to Ben Hoffman, his good buddy of mine, fellow mm. um, triathlete, 
I don't, before the race, I'm like, ah, I don't really feel right. But Jan was there. Here we yeah. are the first time I get a chance to race him again. And I, I love racing the best because I get the best out of myself. So pin it, have a great swim in the front with a couple guys on the bike, start to get this kind of spreading pain through my chest and then uh, shooting pain down my left arm mm -hmm. and my uh, jaw started to lock up. Right. All like classic signs. But right. I'm looking down, like you said, I'm pushing 300 plus watts. Saying, There's no way I'm having a heart attack if this is, you know, if I'm still mm -hmm. physically able to do this. So I backed it off a little bit and um, just kind of made it through. And then everything just kept getting worse and worse and worse um, until I called my primary care doc in Boulder uh, and he, told him what was going on. I actually called my wife, um, Rinda Carpe. So but first of all, you finished the race. I finished the race, right? yep. And you're still, what, you were 13th or something like that? I was like 11th, I was 11th. just out of the money. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and I was so mad at myself. <laughs> right, all right. So you know something's off, but it's not a heart attack. Like you wouldn't be able, you would have just collapsed. Like we all have an, this mental construct of, of what that looks like. Like suddenly you just, you know, fall down to the ground. Yeah. And. I go back to my first Ironman World Championship where I DNF'd. And I, I, after that race, I told myself, you're never gonna DNF another race again. Cause once mm -hmm. you start, once you let yourself do that, the weakness like creeps in. Yeah. And then all of a sudden quitting is a lot easier. So I would kind of have that mindset. I'm like, nope, like this is just race pain. You're gonna tough it out. But as, I, as time passed, um, after I finished, I knew, hey, this isn't this isn't right. This is I've done full Ironmans, and uh -huh. started to feel better quicker than this, not worse. Yeah, and that's when the kind of the red flags really started to go off. So you call Rennie, your wife. Mm -hmm. You're like, I don't feel so good. She says, what? She says you need to call Doctor Dave right now. Mm -hmm. um, so I called Dave, and he's like, dude, you need to take some aspirin and get yourself to the hospital right now. And what's going through your mind when you hear that? Uh, I had a feeling I knew what was going on and a lot uh -huh. of people were like, oh, just dehydration. And, um, but I just, I knew it was something worse and went to the first hospital, which was down the street. And it, I mean, it took 90 minutes to get an, an IV and to get looked at. And I was starting to get a little nervous. Like, this isn't the place I probably should be. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's a weird thing. There's this juxtaposition between strengths and weaknesses. Like your strength as an athlete saying, I'm not gonna DNR, <laughs> I'm yeah. gonna push through no matter what, right? Uh, not, you know, not the best strategy when you're dealing with what you were dealing with. And the fact that you're so robust and so strong that you could literally walk up right into the ER and say, I'm having weird symptoms. They're not gonna prioritize looking at you, Yeah. right? Yeah. Definitely, I mean, uh, especially with everything going on. I mean, they had the big like COVID-10 outside the hospital. Uh -huh. like, it's like a scene out of outbreak, right? So that's right, it, it was, like that layered on top yeah. of the whole thing. And you like to go back to what you you spoke about a minute ago, um, being in Australia, having like fluttering early COVID. So, so basically what you're saying is you think you had COVID early before people were talking about getting COVID, like yeah. before there was a test for it. Um, and perhaps there's some aspect of long COVID that that is like an implicating factor in all of this. Yeah, I mean, this is all me just thinking yeah. about it, right? Um, uh, obviously, I don't have a medical degree. No, but... you're an engineer, though. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. you know. Well, I mean, you're there's... a student of your own body, though. Yeah, and, and there's two things. There's two things that happens when you have. Um, I had a soft plaque rupture 
uh, mm-hmm. and the, um, the plaque filled up my LED right at the top of the LED by the the, um, the left main um, artery or ventricle. Yeah, uh, but which is not great. Not like, ideal. That's but not where you want it. Yeah, to yeah. It's it's a dangerous yeah. spot, right? The further higher up you go, the more you're shutting off. Um, but there's two things that happen, right? There's the actual there's the plaque buildup, which was happening anyways. But then there's the the inflammation and the uh, the um, in the artery wall that's compromised, right? Mm-hmm. That wall has to fail. So right. in my mind, I'm, I'm wondering is if inflammation or something related to, to possibly, you know, earlier um, when I was having all those other issues may have been part of the buildup to mm-hmm. lead for that art, uh, artery wall failing. Right, there's the, the buildup of the plaque is one thing. That's decades yeah. of either some combination of genetic predisposition, lifestyle, et cetera. Uh, but then there's the rupturing of the plaque and it's free flowing, like what causes that rupture? And then the rigidity of the arterial wall, right? right? Like whether it can like bend or flex as that, that like loose flowing plaque is, is cruising through, you know, <laughs> through the LAD. Yeah. And what, and, and what role did or may have COVID played because of the, inf- the long-term in, you know, inflammation aspect of right. that? Yeah, 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 I get it. And um, one of the, I've worked with the several cardiologists trying to, mm-hmm. you know, obviously you wanna get the best guys around you, especially if you wanna get back to competitive yeah. triathlon. Uh, and uh, Aaron Bagish, who I'd worked with at Mass General, he's since moved on. I believe he's running the um, like sports cardiology for the IOC, mm-hmm. moved to Switzerland. But he did say in runners that plaque buildup in the LAD at that point is like they haven't linked it, but it's something they see. And I didn't I didn't have plaque build build up anywhere else. And, and he said the, the kind of that flow at that point in the LAD is is very high and, and normal for an endurance athlete. Meaning, uh, well, yeah, it's just it's just a point where when you're an endurance athlete and you're pumping so much blood all the time, uh, right? That it is a spot that seems to get compromised. Is it that that like Jim Fix thing? You know, like the idea that the the, the enlarged runner's heart that uh, causes you know the advanced endurance athlete to have heart problems later in life at a higher incidence rate than the normal person. You hear uh, a lot about that, yeah, right? Yeah, I'd say yeah. it's probably like a little different because I mean, my heart was my heart size is normal, I'm, but mm-hmm. yeah, I mean. Enlarged hearts, so it's yeah. very common in the sport as well. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so you're in the ER. You're you're, you're waiting. They're not ushering you in, right? No. <laughs> so, <laughs> at some point, though, they're they're having a look at you. Like, tell me what happened. So yeah, it kept getting worse. Uh, actually, our uh, videographer that helps us, um, like with our YouTube show and things like that, took me to the hospital, and tell I couldn't. It? It was Talbot uh, no, at the um, time, wasn't it? Or uh, Kenny Withrow? Oh, was, okay. Is, was working yeah, with us uh, and still does. Um, okay, cool. Talbot got very busy. <laughs> yeah, I know. He well, he switched over to Lionel and that yeah. became a full time thing. <laughs> and right? They're doing yeah. awesome. I mean, great job. But, but he, uh, you did some stuff with him early on. We didn't did. You? Yeah, yeah, we yeah, were. He first started working with us, Gwen Jurgensen and Talbot. Right. I mean, sorry, and Lionel uh-huh. and. Uh, I think he he picked it right that Lionel was the way to go. <laughs> like he can only focus on one, and he was totally right. Like that uh-huh. was that was the gold mine for sure. Yeah. Um, but yeah, Kenny, like he, I was in the, I couldn't even walk into the hospital. I was vomiting outside of the hospital, mm. and Kenny had to like pick me up and, and bring me into the hospital. And uh, it it wasn't until they they realized they did the blood work and my levels were through the roof for um, 
you know, the enzymes that are showing signs of the heart that muscle dying. Uh, right, there's an enzyme that gets released that shows definitively that you're having a heart attack. Yeah, yep, yeah. absolutely. Which they also say, if you tested like anybody that finished an Ironman right afterwards, they would, that enzyme level would be through the oh, roof really? too, just from the effort. Uh-huh. So there's even a little like ambiguity there if it really is what's happening. But they made the decision to bring me to uh, Jackson South Hospital and get me in with the cardiology team. And uh, they brought in the big, um, like uh, paddles, the big paddles. And all of a sudden there's a lot of people around me. And that's when I kind of realized that in, in my head that am I, you know, I asked myself, am I gonna die? Is this it? Mm. Uh, and that was, that was probably the hardest moment while I was kind of going through all this. And, you know, I quickly made the decision to put that thought out of my head. Um, my son, you know, have two, two children, Isabel and Finn, and Finn was only eight weeks old at that mm. point. So. Mm. Uh, definitely wanted to make sure I was around for for him. Yeah, for both of them. Yeah, I mean, that's a a flashpoint moment. You know, I can't imagine a more kind of acute reckoning with your own mortality. And again, it's this weird dichotomy between the the kind of superhuman fitness that you have to have to do what you do, which which I suspect gives you a sense of you know, maybe a little kind of um, outsized uh, sense of immortality. Like, yeah. oh, I can, you know, I can do all this stuff. Like literally you can have a widow make a heart attack and walk around afterwards. Like, you know, like, you know but then to be in the ER and have, yeah, like it's that, you know, but then this is working against you at the same time, right? And then to have like a ton of bricks land on you and say, actually you're human and perhaps, even more frail than you might have imagined, and to have that crystallized into, yeah. um, you know, such a uh, you know an intense moment with young children, you know, at at arguably like the peak of your career, coming off a second place at at Kona, Absolutely. like it's a very uh, you know disassociative uh, experience, I, I imagine. It, yeah, and it was definitely hard to get my head around, uh, mm-hmm. especially in the moment. And you top all that off with the fact that this is how you make your living. You know, this is how you feed your kids. Mm-hmm. And not only are you faced with this moment of mortality and realizing that you aren't invincible no matter how fit you are. And I think that's a big thing for endurance athletes of all levels. We all think we're invincible mm-hmm. when the fact is we're, you know, can be as frail as anybody else. And then on top of that, it's okay. You know, not only can I, do I know that death is real right now, but I might be out of a job. Mm-hmm. So it was scary. There was a lot going on. Yeah. Yeah, I think there there is, you hear this adage, uh, you know, you can't out-train a bad diet or bad lifestyle habits or whatever. But, but I mean, you're kind of like, yeah, but I train 25 hours a week yeah. now. Like, you know, like, like that might apply to yeah. other people, yeah. you know, like- At 10 or 15 hours, maybe, <laughs> yeah. but 25. But like, I've been out on my bike for like <laughs> six hours, like, you know, at, at like normative, you know, watts of like, you know, I don't know, for you 300 or whatever it is, you're like, <laughs> I'm gonna eat like a huge plate of whatever I feel like, Yeah, you know, and I'll be fine because I'm not like those other people, yep. right? It's not gonna happen to so me. So you have this, yeah. And you, and so then you, there's reckoning and you're like, oh, actually that's true. And, you know, not to get into, neither of us are doctors, like 
was this caused by genetics? Is this, right. you know, all of that, I'm sure, you know, all of this is swimming around in your mind, but just in the moment that, that confusion of trying to make sense of this and like how you're gonna move forward and like, am I even gonna survive to the next day? Right. So they poke around initially, right? And they're like, they seem unalarmed until they're, they are alarmed. Right? right, so they brought me to the other hospital uh, and, they, and even the, the, the cardiologist comes in, the team, you know, they're on call, so it takes a little while. And, and he, the doctor comes in and is like, we're, just, we're gonna go in and look. You know, we're gonna, mm-hmm. uh, we, we don't think, we think it's nothing big, but we're gonna go look, it'll be quick. And then all of a sudden they're in there for a while. Mm-hmm. And that's when I really knew that something was, you know, definitely yeah. up. And they finished the procedure. They placed the biggest stent they had, you know, in there. And uh the doctor And they said, go do they go through your groin to do that? They actually they, they went through my arm. Your arm. Just mm-hmm. uh it's a preferred, you know, groin is pretty common, but the recovery is a little bit harder since, you know, you gotta got to keep weight off of that area right. after that procedure. You don't want to rupture anything. Um, so if they can go through the arm and it works, and that's kind of their preferred method, mm-hmm. uh, which is great because I just I'm left-handed too, so they went through my right arm even better. Yeah. Um, but yeah, they went through. They poke around and um, they kind of clean the blockage out and they put the stent in to reinforce the artery wall uh, where it was compromised. And the first thing the doctor said to me uh, afterwards, and I, I didn't really know what was going on. He said, well, I guess you're gonna have to find a new career. Mm. And uh, one of the nurses, uh, the, the, his head nurse had actually worked at Boulder Community Hospital. Mm. And he- What uh, the odds of that? Yeah, I know, right? Cause and you're in like, Miami. Yeah, we're in Miami. <laughs> and he, uh, he just like, let's, let's go on the dock. He's like, he's like, dad, don't say that. He's like, no way, Tim. He's like, you're gonna be fine. He's like, says to the doctor, I, I've seen guys like Tim in Boulder all the time. They're up, they're riding their bikes in two weeks, three weeks. Don't worry about it. You're gonna be good. So. Mm. Uh, it was a little, little reassuring from, uh, yeah, from one of our Boulder friends. Yeah, yeah. Wow. Um, it's so intense, like trying to make sense of that, trying to understand, you know, so just so out of left field, like you know, something you would have never imagined would have happened to you at such a young age, at such a high level of fitness. Um, of course, in the wake of that, you have this rehabilitative period, but at some point you have to reckon with like, am I gonna still be a pro, pro triathlete? Yeah. Like I've had this near death experience. Um, I'm interested in, in like what you've taken from that or learned from that that's informed your life. But often, you know, people that have those experiences, they have a relatively short half-life. Like they're, they have a very acute awareness of their mortality for a period right. of time. And then it kind of tails off and you're back to normal again. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, I think the first thing was making sure we got all the information. And the second thing was making sure it was a decision between myself and, and Rennie. Yeah. Uh, because, it, you know, it is more than just me. and. I've had a great career in triathlon and I had quickly come to realization that if I can't do this, then that's okay. Mm-hmm. I don't need to do this. It's something I love to do and I want to do, but if it's gonna be detrimental to my health and my longevity and being around for my family, then it's not something I should do. Yeah. And that's when we just you know, started to really align with some of the right, right people, the right doctors and, and make sure that we were good to go. Mm-hmm. So you get uh, a clean bill of health, like it is safe for you to train. So, 
uh, you know, and this sense of like unfinished business. Like I, I was progressing, like I was getting better. Maybe I can still, you know, do this. Um, so there's the physical aspect of, of the strain that you're gonna put on your body, right? And I'm interested in, in like the stress test that, you know, they performed on you because like that would be, you know, it's like, you don't really, you know, like you're not gonna fit into their paradigm of like how we measure these <laughs> things for the average person in the wake of a heart attack. Um, so maybe talk a little bit about that. And then I wanna get into like the mental, yep. you know, aspect of this because I, you know, I have a sense that that has been a much um, steeper mountain to climb. Definitely. Um, yeah, on the physical side, uh, like you said, the, the, men, the mental side definitely was was mm. much harder challenge. On the physical side, uh, I actually dodged two bullets. So there's after you get fixed and the arter, or, or the uh, the clog is unclogged and everything's reinforced, uh, the longer you you have a blockage, the more damage you can actually cause to the heart mus muscle. So you get scarring on the heart, and mm. that can really affect the way the heart heart works. Um, and how much blood it pumps. So, mm. you know, I, I had my heart attack during the race and I didn't, it was maybe, I don't know, four o'clock or so. And it wasn't until maybe 1 a.m. the next, that like the next morning that they, they uh, fixed it. So there was a lot of time under right. duress there. So they're very worried that there's gonna be a lot of damage to the actual heart muscle. But luckily uh, scarring was minimal and function wasn't impaired. So. I dodged a bullet making it through the actual incident and then I dodged another bullet with um, mm. the long-term damage that it actually caused to the heart muscle. So, I mean, I couldn't be any luckier yeah. for considering what happened to me. And I don't think we've said it, but the survival rate for a Widowmaker is like 12% yeah, or something like that, right? It's definitely pretty like, low. Yeah. And I have a friend who's a heart surgeon, a uh, retired heart surgeon that I talked to after the fact. And he's like, they should be peeling you off of the speedway right now. He's like, Wow. Count your blessings mm -hmm. <laughs> that you're here. So on the road back physically, I actually went to cardiac rehab, and it was it was pretty entertaining. Yeah. Like you said, like how do you like really measure? And we had to bring my get Tim on the treadmill. <laughs> <laughs> I was probably about thirty years younger than the you average. To break all the class. records, though. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so you know, most of the we you do it as a group of like I don't know eight ten people in at a time, uh -huh. and they're all kind of you know seventy five eighties, yeah, and. They're all just churning along at 20 RPMs on recumbent bikes or walking on treadmills. And I, my coach, Julie Dibbins, came in with me that first day and like, okay, like you can't follow our protocol. It's not gonna work. Yeah. You guys just have to ramp it up. You gotta get your heart rate up and we'll monitor. We'll be You're there like, watching. I'm gonna crush this test. <laughs> so we get on the treadmill and I start bumping the treadmill up. It only goes to like eight miles an hour. Uh -huh. So I'm like, this isn't gonna work. Yeah, for this me. isn't gonna yeah. work. So we ended up having to bring my trainer in and my bike and just doing doing our own bike sessions in there. Mm -hmm. It was it actually did give me a lot of confidence because I did have the heart rate up and I knew that they were monitoring everything. And if something went wrong, I was at the hospital. Right. So it, right, it actually right. was a, a big part of my mental recovery too. So it gave you confidence that you could push yourself without uh, you know any kind of like real danger, yep. physical danger to yourself, um, which is important because that's what your sport's all about. The analogy that comes to mind is, is like a professional cyclist who has a bad crash, you know, and they have to descend, you know, just be fearless, you know, in these yep. alpine descents or whatever. If you have a bad crash, like 
you're going to hold back, yeah, right? Just get that little bit of hesitation. Yeah, and it's, and or if you have a you know suddenly you have a kid and your whole like kind of worldview shifts, it's not just about you. You're gonna you're gonna like that you know however many percentage points uh, you're gonna be kind of off what you used to be. How does that impact you when you're when you know at the at the highest level of sport? It is about those tiniest of increments. Yeah. Uh, that was a huge challenge. Mm-hmm. And uh, even getting on the road to get to that point was a huge challenge. It was, I was on blood thinners. Um, I actually had to be on them for a year afterwards. So, you know, if something happens like on one of those descents or with yeah. the car while you're out there riding, it can get a lot worse, um, especially if it's a brain injury. Yeah, so. you, yeah if, you, if you crash, you're in big you, trouble. Yeah, you're right, in big trouble. So mm-hmm. I stayed on the trainer for a while and then I finally started getting outside and I'd been sort of removed. And then you're outside and these big semi trucks are passing you on, you know, Highway 36 in Boulder and you're like, ah, uh-huh. you know, this is, you realize like, wow, this is, this is really kind of dangerous out here. And then you normalize to it again. You're like, okay, I'm comfortable out here. And uh, you kind of get back into your routine a little bit. Mm-hmm. But you're also questioning, like, the further you are from the information, the real information, the harder it is to, um, I guess, get a hold of it, right? So like the doctors, the cardiologists, they have, they're very versed and everything. And to them, it's like, no, you're fine. You're okay. We uh-huh. we fixed it. Um, it's a mechanical issue. It's been fixed. You're good to go. But I don't, I don't know that as much as them. This is my first experience being yeah. in there. So there's a lot of questioning in your mind, like, okay, well, is it really fixed? Like, mm-hmm. am I really good to go? And then you remove another level, like friends and family who have even less information than me about it. And they are petrified. Yeah, they're like, "What are you doing?" Yeah, they're like, "You're crazy," right. you know. Yeah, um, and you have a you have a graduate degree in engineering, yeah. right? Like, there are other things <laughs> that you could be doing, right? Definitely, we'll get into that. But um, yeah, relatives, friends, etc. But your wife, Rinny, who we haven't even really talked about, but she's an incredible Ironman champ. She won the yeah. world championships three times, right? Three times, Set plus the 7.3 run record, world championship. Like, like yeah. unbelievably accomplished um, Ironman triathlete. Yeah, she makes me look like a chump. <laughs> yeah, I'm, right? I'm just like trying to like <laughs> not get embarrassed. We'll get into here. what that marriage looks like. <laughs> uh, you, you know, so, you know, where's her head at and like in terms of like being supportive, being concerned, yeah. cautious, so, Rini, she's an unbelievable human being and a, an amazing wife. Mm-hmm. And it took me a while to really realize the toll it was taking on her. Even at the even at the very beginning, when I was at the hospital, we're like, okay, we need to keep this quiet. I don't know what this is going to look like. Um, you know, there could be implications with partnerships and things like that. So we just need to like figure this out before we tell people. Mm-hmm. And but she was at home by herself with two little kids. Yeah. And like, she needs an outlet. And one of her friends was over and she just started bawling. Like she needed to, like she needed that outlet. And so, you know, that was a little bit of a, an awakening. Like, okay, yeah, like this is a big impact on Rennie. But it wasn't until, I don't know, even two months later where I was starting to get back to some training and uh, I was gonna do a treadmill run. And I and she was gonna uh, lay down with our, our uh, son Finn, get him down for a nap and take a nap with him. And I'm like, yeah, I'm gonna run an hour. Well, an hour passes by or whatever. I'm, I get sidetracked doing something around the house. I start super late and I get on the treadmill and TV's blasting and music's blasting. I'm running 
And she just wakes up from the nap like two hours later, just hearing blasting TV. In her mind, she's like, Tim should have been done running. Exactly, he's been done running an hour ago. So I'm running along and door busts open and Rooney just has this look on her face. You know, she didn't know if she was gonna see me, you know, lying on the ground dead, right? And uh, she sees me and just goes, there's this huge sigh of relief. And that's when it really hit me like, oh my God, like this is a massive impact on Rini. The psychological toll yeah. on you. Yeah, mean, of she's course. going through a lot and she's she's very stoic. I mean, she's a professional athlete. She's one of the best in the world. She's She knows how to handle pain and almost internalize it, even if it's uh, to her detriment. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, you know, that's that really hit me hard about what, what this has done to her too. Yeah. So how do you work through that? Like, how do you come to some kind of agreement about uh, how you're gonna move forward together? Uh, it's tough because she know, like she was close enough to know that it was okay. But like I said, still a little bit further removed that it's kind of mm-hmm. scary. And even I think honestly just having it, <laughs> Okay, this is what I'm gonna do for this <laughs> short period of time, right? Yeah. Like, like letting- like, I got two more years or yeah. let's just, yeah. Because I didn't realize, t- like even at, um, we both raced uh, Ironman 70.3 Santa Cruz in September. Mm-hmm. And she even said out there, she was on the course, like it wasn't until after that race that she started to let go. She's like, even in the race, I was worrying, where's Tim? Am I gonna see Tim? making sure I was okay. But after that race, everything seemed to kind of normalize for her. Mm -hmm. But then in Kona, a month later, my mom's texting Rini, like, how are you watching this? Like, I can't watch. You know, my mom's petrified that I'm gonna drop dead on Ironman live coverage. Yeah. And uh, once again, like one step further removed from yeah, from the yeah, doctors yeah, yeah. and the knowledge yeah. that this is okay, but yeah, uh, and my mom didn't tell me that, uh, but she <laughs> she didn't want to freak me out. But yeah, and even if even if like yeah, it's that that gap between like logically understanding like you're safe, the doctors are telling yep. you you're safe, but it's kind of like when you're on an airplane, you're like you know it's it's a pretty safe way to travel, but you're like you think you're going to crash at any minute, you know, like like that has to like, and knowing that all these people who love you are concerned about you is a psychic toll that you're carrying, right? And understanding that it's more than just you with the kids and all these people that care about you and impact that this is having on them, like the commitment that you have to bring to your sport um, while also like managing that is like an added, like, you know, kind of mental aspect Mm -hmm. of, of the training. Right. And it's, you hate to say it's as simple as just time, but there mm-hmm. is that component of it. Everybody just needs time to yeah. to heal and kind of have their cathartic moment with all of this. Mm-hmm. So two things, first of all, like when you're training, do you feel yourself like holding back or do you like, can you match that like max heart rate or, you know, those like watt thresholds or do you kind of like, maybe I shouldn't, just, you know, that I'll, I'll hold back that 5%. Honestly, I don't feel like Rich that I got to that point where I could really push myself until the Kona build. Uh-huh. It was, it, it took that long. Um, part of, there's other factors too. There's, I almost had a complete year off of training and racing. Mm-hmm. So I'm dealing with a lack of fitness that I had to rebuild. And at this point I'm now turning 42. Right. So there's the age component as well. And 
no matter how fit you are, as you get older, you know, your max heart rate is going to start to mm -hmm. diminish. Mm -hmm. So we're kind of dealing with all of that. But I did, I had to do Ironman Des Moines in June to qualify. And that was a, <laughs> that, that was really tough mentally. I mean. Well, so after the heart attack, how much time did you take off? And then how much time between the heart attack and Des Moines? Because I want to get into that race. Yeah, so pretty much all of 2021, I, I took maybe four to six weeks off. Actually, mm -hmm. the cardiologist in Boulder had me on the um, treadmill doing a stress test like the next week. He's like, you're good to go. One week. Yeah, I feel confident, <laughs> but you need to stay aerobic and you need to manage your training load because you have to let your heart recover. Yeah. So training load, like hours was minimal. Intensity was almost non-existent uh, for most of that year. And then January, January of 2022, I kind of went back into that normal training routine. Mm -hmm. So I had a couple months before uh, Des Moines to, to try to get back into Ironman fitness. Almost got there, <laughs> didn't quite get there. Yeah. Um, in Des Moines, you're first out of the water. You ride 412 on the bike, yeah. right? And then <laughs> you rode a 301 marathon, even though you like blew up in the last 10K. Yeah, the last probably, yes. I think it was 19 mile, 19 third. I just shattered. Like, so this is like a crazy performance. I mean, for anybody, any pro, but to make that like your first Ironman after what you suffered through, like is unbelievable, right? Like that's pretty amazing. It, as a, I don't know, I'm always gonna, as a pro athlete, you're always hard on yourself, right? Yeah. So you're always, you're never happy with a performance. But yeah, I mean, as I look back, yeah, that was pretty impressive to be able to put that together. Mm -hmm. But it, it the, you know, as we talked about the mental side of it was the hardest part. I was in third, I needed, all I needed to do is get third to qualify for Kona, mm -hmm. which was my goal for the year to get, just to get back to Kona, just to celebrate the sport and what I've, did to get back to that point. And I had like a 14 minute lead on fourth place and I'm walking and I'm, I'm like, I should just drop out. Like these negative thoughts are coming in my head. Right. Like, I don't, uh, do I even need to do this? Like I can, I can, my family's right over there. We can just go hang out and, and, ch and chill. Uh -huh. And uh, I actually saw Kenny who was filming there and I ran by him. He's like, everybody's struggling right now, T.O. Everybody's struggling right now. Just keep, just hold it together. And I just broke it down to the most basic. Okay, I'm not gonna worry about the guy that's 14 minutes back. I'm not gonna worry about qualifying for Kona. Let's just run, mm -hmm. start jogging from aid station to aid station and let, let's at least just finish this race. Mm -hmm. And um, if this is my last Ironman, okay. You know, but let's, let's get to the finish line yeah. and, and at least get an Ironman finish under my belt. And once I did that and I started to, I, I, didn't, I didn't, come back to life, but I was able to hold it together enough to, to stand the podium and get that Kona spot. Is that a perspective shift from the pre-Widowmaker Timothy? Like in the year prior to the Widowmaker, would that have been your mindset in a race like that if you were struggling in the last six miles? Uh, you know, I don't know. Um, I, I definitely had those moments before where you gotta, you have to button it up a little bit. Right. But the, but the kind of lingering like, hey, is this worth it? Like I could just be with my kids. Yeah, do I actually really I had that in Ironman Bowler in 19. Oh, you did? Yeah. Okay. yeah. And then maybe that's a product uh -huh. of also being in the sport for so long, right? Uh-huh. Because uh, it's hard. I mean, yeah. I started racing Kona in 2011. I hadn't missed a year. Right. And like that, that, you know, you look at the, a lot of the guys, you know, have an injury or something that gives them a break and it's 
they, oh, everybody always comes back better. Mm. You know, they, it's like, we just need a little bit more time off. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. yeah, I think part of it, just time in the sport. And um, it was exacerbated though, 100% by the, the heart attack. Sure. Because it was, it came in, it crept in quicker and it hit harder because there was also the doubt like that this is even something you should be doing. Right. But you make your, you, you get your slot to go to Kona and, and going into that race uh, is your, like having, having gotten second the last time you raced it, the obvious thing would be like, well, now I need to go back and win it, right? But having had, you know, the heart attack, my sense is, and also from kind of like watching your, your vlog in the wake of that race was like, I just wanna be proud of my race. Like I wanna, I'm, I'm proud that I qualified and I get to go do this um, and have this experience. Uh, so that feels like a, you know, kind of a new approach or sensibility, like that is very much tied to, you know, the experience of surviving something potentially fatal. It was, and it was, it was hard to understand that even in leading into the race. And it wasn't until I was out there on the run that mm-hmm. I really had that moment. And it was, the, it was a decision, you know, I came off the bike, I was still, I think I was fifth or sixth at that right. point running down in Leahy. I was very much in that race. Yeah. And, uh, but I kind of got out mile eight or nine and I was on the uh, Queen K. And I was at that point where I didn't feel great. I wasn't as fit as I probably needed to be to um, run well off of the ride I had just put together. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I know I've been there before, right? That you can, things can go really wrong out here. So I, I was definitely holding back holding there because back, I yeah. wanted, I made the decision that this is, this isn't about trying to go for a top 10. I've been, you know, I wasn't gonna run onto the podium at that point. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I've been in the top 10 plenty of times. This was about me coming back and the support of everybody around me to get me to this point. Not only my family, coaches, teammates, but the whole triathlon community. I mean, the right. support I've had was unbelievable. So I really wanted that moment to be something that I enjoyed and that we could all enjoy yeah. together. And it made it made running down that finish line, even though it wasn't, you know, my best finish, probably my best moment in triathlon. But you had a great race. I, I mean, you, you performed quite well and you were, I, what were you, 13th, I think? I was 13th, yeah. 13th. It was, yeah. But on another year, you would have been like, I don't know, fifth or fourth or something yeah, like that. I mean, yeah, it was yeah. just an unbelievable year. I mean, yeah, 802 on any other year would be. Yeah. Yeah, it would crushing. be right there, yeah. You know, <laughs> that was what was so time there. weird <laughs> about this year. Like, <laughs> like uh, there were so many, uh, you know, veteran pros who were actually having really good races. Yeah who were just non-factors and I watched the whole like live stream and they were like, you know, like Lionel and, you know, like barely mentioned because yeah. they were so far, you know, behind the the tip of the spear. Um, even like, you know, Cam Wirth, who's coming in here in a couple of days, I can't wait to talk to him as well. <laughs> you know, bike course record holder, who you would think if you're watching the lot, following the race, like, oh, he's way off his game. He's yeah. like not even anywhere near the front. He's still, breaks the bike course record, doing great, yeah. but there were just all these guys faster yeah. than him. Like it was a real- And like, those guys are running under 240. very <laughs> like definitive, like seismic shift. Like here's a new generation of people. Yeah. This sport is changing, it's changing really quickly. And this is the, the, the new crop, like a changing of the guard. Kona made that so evident. Yeah. I mean, it, and I think there's a couple factors. You know, we had a big break, right? You know, Kona right. 19 versus Kona 2022. 20, but 
because we missed those races in between, you normally get like one or two rookies that come into a race you have high hopes for every year. But because they, they don't have the numbers, they almost just kind of fall into line with how the race is playing out. Mm -hmm. But here we had this critical mass of young guys new to Kona yeah. and they didn't care. And right. they didn't get stuck into the group think of how the old guys do it. <laughs> They're like, no, like, let's go boys. And I think that I dynamic know. of having all those new guys there at, at the same time really led to that. And, and kind of casual about the whole thing. You know, like, oh yeah, I, I rode this or I rode, yeah like, yeah, like it was no big deal. Like not like, you know, like the older guys going, holy shit, like they're so much better. They're yeah, so much I mean, faster. You know, I, you, know I, you had the Norwegian uh -huh. fellas here yeah. uh, a couple months ago and, and, and Olaf, their coach, and they were very matter of fact of like, this is what we're gonna yeah. do. And they did it and they executed. They executed perfectly. And, and, and none of this, like, I know you, you've worked with Mark Allen, yeah. right? So you're steeped in the mysticism of the island and the, the kind of vicissitudes of Madame Pele's, you know, uh, you know, decision to support or not support. You know, yeah. Athletes. And, 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 you know, kind of being in sync with that, you know, vibration being an important aspect of how you approach that race and, 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 and race that race. And I asked, uh, I asked Gustav, I was like, yeah, what do you think about like, he's like, Pfft. yeah, doesn't get you no shit. He's Mark like, had to be yeah, like rolling his eyes, right? I know. I was like, <laughs> <laughs> like I, I put no credence in that whatsoever. And like, he's young and the first time he did it, he won. So it's like, it's understandable yeah. that he's like, I don't understand why everyone gets caught up about that. I think there's two things there. I do think the shift in weather, it's, it's not the same race in terms of conditions. I think that yeah. used to be. Well, I the mean, conditions were unbelievable yeah, this year, but right? They've been, you know, the race got shifted a little bit earlier in the morning, which helps. Um, and then, yeah, I mean, 18, the conditions in 18 were amazing too. I mean, Daniela's race, that was uh -huh. kind of the equivalent of what, you know, the Norwegians and Sam Laidlow did this year. Um, but yeah, that attitude they have. And I'm a little bit envious actually, Rich. I'm, yeah. I feel like I love to see it, but I feel like my generation, we didn't like after Crowey, between Crowey and now, like we didn't step up like we could have. And you didn't, you didn't uh, like fill, like sort of iterate yeah, on like, what they established. Yeah, we, I yeah. think we all kind of fell in line with that thought of like, this is how it has to be and you have to be mm. patient and all that. Mm. And we didn't have anybody that really- um, Questioned said, that. Yeah. Yeah, interesting. So when you look at, at like the Norwegian methods and what Olaf is doing and all of that, like, what do you take away from that? Like, what do you, what, what, what do you like, you look at that and say, oh, actually, I should use some of this and this and this, or maybe not that. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, they're using a lot of stuff that's been around, but they're using it in different ways, like mm -hmm. lactate testing. Like I've been in the lab many times, done it one-offs, but the way they're incorporating it into the training, I think is taking it to the next level. Mm -hmm. I mean, there are some factors like the shoes and aerodynamics on the bike that are just making everybody faster. And particularly on the bike, when your efficiency gets so much better, uh, you know, you're not spending as much energy on the bike right. and you can, you can run better. Um, I do, I, I get nervous about like the sugar glycogen spikes and that, and that kind of like really like racing at that high, um, high level, uh, how that'll play out in the long run. Meaning, Just, like you're so you're wearing a, a CGM right yeah. now. I can see it on your arm. Super Sapiens, mm -hmm. yeah. 
Um, so you're able to monitor your glucose levels in real time all the time. This is a big thing that the Norwegians are are really looking at and studying. So when you say when you say like the spiking of like what are you talking about specifically? Well, I, yeah, I, I think right now it's I mean glycogen. You need the glycogen to it's it's a numbers game, right? To yeah. be able to perform for that long with those numbers, you got to be burning a lot of fuel. Mm-hmm. Um, I just don't know how when you're operating at that high um, level of um, like blood glucose levels, how that will play with inflammation and right and the long term implications on that. Yeah, long term metabolic health and and insulin resistance mm-hmm. over time, right? Yeah, and some of the advice I've gotten going back to the heart is don't like every time you spike your blood sugar, you're triggering inflammation mm-hmm. that is the worst thing mm-hmm. for your heart. Yeah, and you're 43 now, 42? Uh, yeah, I'll be, I'll be 43 at the 43. end of the year. 43, yeah. Um, yeah, when you're, when you're like Christian and Gustav, he's like, whatever. You know, yeah. like you're in that Superman, infallible, like immortal stage yeah. of your yeah, life. Three Red, Bull, right. three Red Bulls and two shots of espresso at <laughs> yeah. 4.30 in the morning, like, right. like let's go. <laughs> um, before the podcast I was sharing with you, uh, I've got a galley of this new book called Outlive by Dr. Peter Atia. It's coming out this spring. He's coming in here next week. And it's it, the thesis of this book, it's, it's really, it's a very grounded kind of uh, look at um, extending not just lifespan but health span yeah. through the you know prevention or delay of the biggest causes of mortality, which are heart disease, right, yeah. or heart attacks, diabetes, uh, obesity, metabolic, and, and it's all about like um, all of these things are rooted in metabolic dysregulation. So he's a big proponent of using CGMs and trying to be ahead of the curve in terms of like how our body is metabolizing the food that we yeah. eat and the stress that we incur and all these sorts of things. Um, and it's super interesting. And of course, yes, it relates to inflammation and all of these things are interrelated in a way that we don't uh, appreciate adequately. Like we treat them separately. Well, type two diabetes and, and heart diseases are two separate things. Well, actually, you know, like, you know, like, there, there's the a lot, cause. yeah, like the Venn diagram overlaps quite a bit on all of this sort yeah. of stuff. And so for you being at your age, who's still an elite professional athlete who has, you know, suffered this heart attack and I'm sure has learned a lot about heart health, like what are the things that you've taken away in terms of A, like your own, um, your own habits around lifestyle, nutrition, diet, et cetera. Um, and, and kind of the advocacy piece of, of like what you want, you know, the normal person out there to understand about what, you know, how we should be, uh, you know, thinking about our heart health and testing, et cetera. Yeah, I mean, I think first and foremost, everybody should learn their family history and know the warning signs. And those are things that I neglected. And fortunately, the silver lining for everything that's happened is happened to me is that I do have a platform now that I can talk about this mm-hmm. and bring awareness. And I've had so many emails and pe- or people coming up to me at races saying, thank you. Like you, you brought this education to me or a family member and you've, you've helped us step in and, and prevent you know, worse things happening mm-hmm. from existing heart issues. So that's been huge, you know. Uh, like, so, so, okay, so in your case, uh, family history is what? 
on my father's side, we had, a, well, my, my mother's side, we had a heart attack, but I believe most of the genetic stuff is from your, from the, uh, uh, from your father's side. And we, we had uh, coronary artery disease and mm-hmm. quite a few of his ancestors. And he actually had this whole, like, I don't know if it was 23 me or one of those things done. Yeah. And I'm flipping through this and like, oh my gosh, like they had people going way back, family members, and like everybody's like coronary artery disease and not just like a heart issue, you know, an artery issue, which is, you know, what yeah. I had. Except one guy who I think fell on a train track and was, you know, hit by a train. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, okay, that one's not heart related. But at what age, like he might've had a heart attack yeah, if he, it, if he yeah, yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But that was going way back. That was, right. I don't know, the early 1900s or something. But. Yeah, so robust history there. Yep. Um, you know, myself also, like my grandfather was a, he was captain of the swim team at University of Michigan in the 1920s. Mm-hmm. and stayed fit his whole life and died of a heart attack at 54. So when I turned 54, like, and, he, and I'm named after him, like it's, you know, you think about your, you know, it, it definitely was living like a present, you know, awareness yep. um, in my like kind of daily consciousness that, you know, I didn't have before that. So um, it just makes you aware, you know, of your mortality, I think, yeah. you know, in a way. Um, but anyway, so, so uh, warning signs then, like you mentioned, you know, obviously chest pain. Chest pain, uh, shortness of breath. Mm-hmm. Huge, huge warning sign. If it feels like someone's sitting on your chest, uh, that's that's a good you know indication that there's an issue. Obviously, you know the the left arm, the the jaw, uh-huh. uh, also signs. Does the jaw happen on both sides or just on the left side? Uh, usually, left side, I believe. Yeah, and that's because the LAD left um, ascending. What does it stand for? Um, Left uh, anterior descending. Anterior descending, yeah. right, okay. Um, that's because that affects that side of the body. I, yeah, right? I believe yeah, so, yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, or um, Rich, if you're, if you're just noticing performance drops, mm-hmm. if you're an athlete and you like all of a sudden, like things seem a little bit harder, there, there might be a, a slowing of your blood flow from right. maybe calcified plaque in an mm-hmm. artery. And then there's a series of tests that you can do. I mean, you can do uh, a calcium scan. Yep. There, there's been some advances in the types of scans though, right? That Huge. You can do. Um, and that actually was a big part of me coming after Des Moines of really getting confidence back. So I had done a calcium uh, scan even before the heart attack. It showed calcified plaque in the LED, not wow. a ton, but where there's calcified plaque, there's soft plaque and mm-hmm. soft, that's, that's can really give you the issues, give you the trouble, rupturing, and you end up where I ended up. But after Des Moines, I started actually having some palpitations and fluttering. I got super nervous. Um, turns out I did have a little bit of a, a abnormal rhythm, but that was just from, hey, you're really dehydrated. You did a hot, humid Ironman. Mm-hmm. You, you shocked your body. Your uh, electrolytes are out of balance. So it's an electrical issue. No, no problem, but I obviously wanted to monitor that. I put a Holter monitor on for a couple of days and we monitored everything. Not a big deal, but I also then went and did a, it's called a Clearly scan. And that can actually, uh, it's a non-invasive way, the only non-invasive way to show soft plaque. Hmm. And I did that, paid out of pocket for it. I don't care, it's peace of mind, I need it. And it did, it really gave me a lot of confidence. We saw everything, everything looked good. Every, you know, everything was, this stent was working, all that stuff. So how does that work, that test? Um, it's it's almost I think it's somehow done off of like a CT scan. Uh-huh. 
and it shows. So the difference with that is it shows soft plaque versus like versus the just calcified, calcified deposits, yeah. right? Uh huh. Interesting. And so you're all good on that. Yeah, I was. Yeah, and that's when I I'm like, all right, let's go. Like, uh-huh. let's let the rains loose. <laughs> right. But that wasn't until like July or August, so I had a pretty short <laughs> runway going into the world champs. Uh huh. So, so in terms of like the average person, maybe the semi-fit person, whatever, like whoever's listening to this, like what is the, you know, I I guess like the ideal time to get tested is is like today, right? Like doesn't matter how old you are or whatever, yeah. how fit you are, or how overweight or or not overweight you are. I mean, you're like the pinnacle of fitness. So we think of people who are having heart attacks as being sedentary, overweight, people who smoke and have terrible diets, et cetera. And so it's shocking, you know, to hear like somebody, like you just wouldn't think somebody like yourself that this would happen. Yeah, and I think, especially if you know you have a family history, definitely mm-hmm. get looked at. Um, my my siblings, I'm the youngest of four and they were all like, yeah. If this happened, uh, you know. Did they all go get in touch. Yeah, they all did. They're like, man, we're screwed if this happened. He's the best yeah. of all of us. He's the fittest. <laughs> and how did those, I mean, are they okay? And, yeah, everybody's yeah. good, yeah. Yeah, good, good. Um, and then in terms of, of, of any kind of lifestyle habits that you've changed as a result. This is a part I actually struggle a little bit with, Rich, mm. because my bandwidth with everything, it's been a lot yeah. to, to manage and, um, I noticed that in Kona, I just didn't have that fight. Like it was such an, a mental, emotional toll to get back to that point that it, you know, that's when I realized how much this had all really taken out of me. Um, and I get mixed things from from different specialists, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I expected everybody to tell me to go vegan. Mm. And, you know, I need to talk to like, I know John Joseph has a cardiologist that he wants me to talk to. Oh. Um, so I'll, <laughs> okay. I'll, I'll probably talk to him when I retire, yeah. but... Um, the really only feedback I got was, hey, um, don't like avoid red meat, basically. Mm-hmm. Like if it swims or flies, it's going to be better for you in terms of inflammation. Yeah. And and I would imagine keeping an eye on like LDL, ApoB yeah. and yeah. like some of these blood markers. And That's the, huge. Yeah. And you have to go beyond uh, your total cholesterol and your yeah. LDL, HDL, um, you know, uh, I work with Inside Tracker, and uh-huh. now they have ApoB, which is a really yeah. big indicator of hey, okay, right. That's that's uh, like everyone's sort of. I think everyone was pushing Inside Tracker for a while to have that to get marker that. because yeah. that has become like the you know most important marker. Yeah. But you can go even further there. than that. The size of your LDL particles is huge, uh-huh. and that's another issue I have. I have small LDL particles that makes it easier to right. kind of get through a compromised artery and collect. Um, yeah, and just different transportation methods, which is the lipoproteins right. and how they bond to things. And um, I do know I need more to get more fiber in. And that's another thing. Uh, I had kind of cut out gluten. I had a lot of stomach issues with the first Kona and mm-hmm. um, leaky gut and all that stuff. Mm. Now that I've learned more, I've kind of realized, hey, maybe it's more of avoiding processed stuff versus you know, good clean wheat or yeah. you know a sourdough, or just looking at things that are that are producing inflammation in your body, also, exactly. right? Exactly. Yeah, and that's yeah. a good thing with blood testing too. Is is yeah, monitoring inflammation and then those particular um, markers. Right. Right. And I did genetic testing as well, and sure enough, there was like four markers that were red flags. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. Cardiovascular yeah. disease. So how are you like moving forward now? Like you're, you're, you're coming off of, you know, a Kona that you're proud of. Um, like what is the, 
you know, the short and long-term future look like for you as an athlete, father, you know, advocate, et yeah. cetera? There was definitely a hard um, this discussion with, with Rennie and like, what's this year gonna look like? I wanted to race. I actually woke up the next morning in code and I'm like, okay, I've closed that chapter. Like I came back, I closed uh-huh. it. But what about performance? I think I can still perform. <laughs> <laughs> so then I'm like, <laughs> I'm like yeah. that wasn't about performance. That was that was it's more of like shocking that that occurred. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But uh, unfortunately, Kona is uh, only going to be a women's race this year mm-hmm. with the new right. format. The men's world championship will be in Nice. So I've decided I'm not going to do that. Right now, I'm just going to do a couple of races that I I want to do for the love of racing and and to try to get back and and, and win a race and. Mm-hmm. Uh, hopefully, do maybe one more Ironman in this in the fall. But right, um, I mean, we talk about inflammation and markers. Like, it takes a toll. Yeah. I mean, training that much, I, you can I can see it in my blood work. Um, so it's not a recipe for longevity. It isn't. No. Yeah. And that's what I, the cardiologist I'm working with, and you know, we had before um, we started recording mentioned statins a little bit, and mm-hmm. I'm not currently on a statin. So you were previously and I, well, after the first year I was. And yeah. so what was the decision to stop? It really was about training. Um, it impeded your, it, your ability. Yeah, to, it causes uh, a lot of um, muscle soreness and um, a lot of issues with, with trying to train. And you know, my doctor friends have inside jokes. They'll be on a ride and all of a sudden someone's not riding that well anymore. It's like, oh, he just got on a statin. <laughs> <laughs> right. But uh, it's wow. a, you know, we just talked about it. It's not a short term. Um, mm-hmm. It's a short-term thing. It's not a long-term thing, and that's how we've approached it. the The best argument I've gotten for being on a statin is that it can actually calcify soft plaque, so it can take some of that dangerous soft mm-hmm. plaque and stabilize it. Um, which is a consideration I have to definitely look more into. But yeah. they, they said that's a long-term thing. You know, you get through racing this year, year and a half, and and that's a plan that we'll develop when you get done. Right. So another year. Yeah. Maybe. I think so. We'll yeah. see. <laughs> <laughs> okay. No, I, I'm not going to put, yeah. I don't want to push it. I don't want to push my luck. I don't want to yeah. push my luck. And how does, uh, I mean, obviously, you know, these are family decisions. Your partner, you know, knows the landscape yeah. better than anybody. Like how, how is that like being married to, you know, an extraordinary athlete who does the same thing that you do. I, I imagine there's there's benefits, but it also maybe makes it challenging. Yeah, there's definitely, um, it's, there's, you know, you gotta, it, there's the good and bad that you're managing. I mean, managing. Timothy, she's more successful than you. She's way more. <laughs> so, I, why am I on here? Why yeah. do she should be sitting here? <laughs> I'd love to talk to her. Um, it, it was actually, it was hard because when we started dating, she was, I was almost like a newcomer, right? Uh I've been doing short course. I was on the national team. I was, Olympics was on my mind. And she was getting ready. We started dating in kind of 09 and she was getting ready for that first world championship. Mm -hmm. Um, So- Was that the one where she just exploded onto the scene? It was, yeah. She ended up second. She ran like 256 Uh in the zoot shoes back in the day. Yeah, 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 yeah. (laughs) So she's not in the super shoes. She's not in a Rocket X or, you know, whatever, making her go fast Mm -hmm. by any means. So, um, yeah, it was, for me, it was a little difficult to find myself, I guess, Mm -hmm. because you're, you're here with the world's, the world's best and there is obviously stuff to learn, but 
everybody does it a different way at the same time. So it almost took me a couple of years to start to realize, hey, this is my path. This is my journey. This is the way I need to do it. And it probably wasn't until 2015 where I had that first podium in Kona where I was comfortable or confident enough in myself uh-huh. to say, okay, I obviously have all the love and the respect in the world for my wife. She's done it this way and it's worked. It's worked three times, but I'm me and this is my journey and this is the way I need to do it. Do you have different training philosophies and methods and different coaches and stuff? Uh, we uh, we do. Well, she started working with Julie Dibbins. I've been working with Julie for a couple of years uh-huh. now, since 2018. Uh, she really, Siri Lindley was her right. kind of that coach yeah, in yeah, her yeah. career. They had a little break and then she got back into it. And Siri, Rini, I'm like you said, I'm an engineer. Like I like to dig into stuff. Rini is so simple. She's like, let's do the work. Uh-huh. I'm going to nail it. This is my goal. This is where I'm going. This is what I'm going to do. And I'm just going to make it happen. And Siri was perfect for her. And that Siri's not a, uh, she isn't, you know, a te- super technical coach. She'd be like 40, 50s, you know, we're going to, they're going to be bing, bam, boom. You know, mm-hmm. they're, they're going to be fast. Okay, I don't know what that means, but like, let's just work hard. And that was perfect for Rini. And for you? For me, I needed, um, probably needed more help, less talent. So uh-huh. <laughs> I needed to learn how to get more aerodynamic yeah. on the bike. I leaned, I needed to learn how to run a little bit more efficiently because those were, weaknesses of mine. Sure, but those are engineering problems. They are, yeah. Right? And sometimes they take time time to solve, right? Yeah. It's, it's, you know, all right, try this and okay, it didn't work, evaluate it, go back, you know, see what happens and then just keep tweaking tinkering. and tinkering. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. And how is it being part of the Boulder community? Like where everyone is, I mean, there's, there's a camaraderie, right? Like there's a sort of esprit de corps, like so many people are into multi-sport and everybody's super fit and out getting after it. Um, but a lot of pros live there and, you know, it's gotta be, does that, is there like a fatigue with that also? Like where you're going out and like kind of everybody's got the same goal and I would imagine that, you know, <laughs> you know there's challenges with there, that. There is. suspect. You don't, you only put your, you only surround yourself with the people you want to be around, right? Uh-huh. So, I mean, there are so many people in Boulder. Actually, you know, Aaron Royal was here, um, you know, Australian professional. Yeah. He was in Boulder for a little while last year. I didn't even know. Mm. Uh, so, well, I everyone's mean, in their basements. Yeah, training, right, you know? right now. Like, you're all in like, Boulder yeah. for. <laughs> and we don't, we're just, we haven't even had any sunshine. Yeah. It's very weird. Very weird. I feel like I'm back on the East Coast uh-huh. in the winter. Um, but yeah, you can, I mean, you surround yourself with the people you want to. And right. I mean, I, I have great training partners. Um, but they're all younger and they they throttle it. So mm-hmm. I have to be um, right. I have to be a little careful about what yeah. I you know what I get into in training and uh, don't let my ego get get the best of me. Right, right, right. Yeah. When you go out with other people, you're either going too hard or too easy. Yeah. Right. Yep. But you're rarely doing what you're supposed to be doing. Yeah. You know what I've actually <laughs> found is the hardest is when um, like an age group athlete or something wants to come and ride with you and. Uh, they get That's nervous. That's their moment. Well, they get, yeah, or they get nervous. They don't want to like hold you back. Uh-huh. And then you just end up getting, they ended up giving it to you. And you're like, no, <laughs> like this is, we just need right. to settle down, you know? Um, I want to talk a little bit about uh, your background. Uh, I think there's some interesting stuff here. So you, uh, your first sport was swimming. Yeah. 
And then you went to the Naval Academy, right? So did you grow up, where did you grow up? You grew up in California or uh, Pennsylvania? You went to like a seminary school uh, yeah. before, <laughs> right? I do, uh, my high school Wyoming seminary, not, it wasn't a, it wasn't like a proper seminary. It's just, uh -huh. it, it was a uh, private day slash boarding Got school. It. But we grew up, my dad was in the corporate automotive world and we grew up everywhere. We got into swimming, we lived in Northern California outside mm. of Sacramento and Roseville. Um, actually, the Summer Sanders, her original swim team as well. Oh, wow, she cool. was um, a little bit before me, but yeah. uh, uh, the Sugar Bears. Nice. Uh, that's where we all started. And then we started moving around, but uh -huh. I was the worst swimmer in my family. Mm. I mean, my family still scratches their head that I've made a career out of being a professional athlete. <laughs> I mean, I was hopeless when I was a kid. <laughs> so, but you did it throughout high school and ended up like what you wanted to be, you wanted to be in the Navy? Like what was the impetus to go to the Naval Academy? No, I didn't, I had no, originally had no desire. My older brother, mm. Thomas, uh, who's a couple of years older than me, he always wanted to go to Annapolis, uh -huh. always did. And uh, he went there and I seemed to kind of follow Thomas. Uh, I, I guess I emulated him. He, he was a great student. I'm like, I'll be a great student. He's a distance swimmer. Okay, I'm gonna be a distance swimmer. Mm. And uh, then he goes to Naval Academy. I'm like, okay, I'll go check it out. So I went and visited him and I, I just, I fell in love with um, just the sense of duty and the sense of there being something more than just a college experience. Mm -hmm. Like it, I really felt like there was a purpose for being there and, and an honorable purpose, uh, yeah. especially. So that, that kind of drew me in. Uh-huh. And did you did you swim competitively at the Naval Academy? I did. I you swam. Did. Uh, I swam my first two years there. Did. Uh -huh. uh, my swimming career was really based off of training harder than everybody else. Yeah, you and me both. Yeah, I mean, it, I didn't have <laughs> I didn't have the goods, uh, but I I prided myself mm -hmm. on knowing that I could work harder than everybody else in right. the pool. I mean, my coach. It'll uh, take you pretty far. It's just not going to take you all the way. Yeah, and it was a. Now I look back, like especially I had, when I had to start working on my running, I'm like, man, I wish I had taken the time to become a more efficient swimmer, work on my stroke, because mm. I could have, I could have been better than I was. Yeah, um, it's a beautiful pool there, though. I'm I'm from Maryland, like mm -hmm. I so I swam lots of meets at the Naval Academy pool over the years. Yeah, I remember when uh, when I was there, I, we came into practice one day and there was an age group meet, and uh, our coach was like, yeah, this kid just crushed the. Uh, I know what you're uh, going The say. pool record and uh, the 200 free record just destroyed it. We're like, well, what's his name? Uh, Michael Phelps. Right, he's 12 or something. <laughs> yeah, he was. Yeah. <laughs> right. Um, and then, uh, and so, so t talk to me about like your kind of career in the Navy. Like you, so you study like Naval engineering, right? Like you're gonna be a shipbuilder or something. And then you go to graduate school at Berkeley. But do you, are you, do you become a Naval officer or what is your relationship with the Navy? Cause I know also like a big thing with you it, like you've got the red, white, and blue kit, and like mm -hmm. there's a you know there's a certain you know kind of relationship that you've maintained um, to you know that experience. So I just I'm curious to learn more about that. Yeah. So when I went to the Naval Academy, um, there's a five year commitment. Mm -hmm. Everybody uh, graduates, and everybody that graduates is commissioned as an officer in the United States Navy. And uh, I, you know, so go to the academy. Had no, never done a triathlon. Didn't even know what triathlon was at that point. Uh -huh. I knew. I'd seen the Timex watches that say Ironman. Right. That's all I knew. I didn't know what it meant. <laughs> and uh, I, uh, my brother Thomas was an ocean engineer and it was time to go pick a 
category, like, you know, um, majors. And I went and like, well, I don't want to do everything Thomas does, mm. but I'll do naval architecture, which is like a subset of ocean engineering, shipbuilding. Mm. So, mm-hmm. I, you know, I picked that and I had the most interesting Navy career, I think, of, of anybody. Um, you have a five-year commitment. Uh, I qualify for a program called the Immediate Graduate Education Program, which allowed you to go to a grad school if you were accepted, you had to be in the top, like, I don't know, 5% of the class. Uh-huh. And you had to get a scholarship from that school. Where well, there's only two schools that have ocean engineering programs in the country. And it was Michigan or, or Cal Berkeley. Uh-huh. And I'm like, whoo, I'm in triathlon at this point. I am yeah. like, I quit swimming. I was full on triathlon. And the, and the academy had a triathlon team. We had a, a club team. So it wasn't oh, a varsity right. sport. But for a while, I balanced swimming and triathlon. I remember my uh, sophomore year, swimming Saturday morning practice. Uh, the officer rep for our tri-team was waiting outside the pool, brought me to the airport. I flew to Tennessee, unpacked my bike, did a, the triathlon race uh-huh. that Sunday, flew back home Sunday night, was back in the water Monday morning at you know 5.30 wow, or whatever. Right. Some coach never knew. He, some coach would have flipped, kicked me off the team if he knew, <laughs> but I was trying to balance both. Uh-huh. And then I did Wildflower at the end of my uh, sophomore year, which at that point was mm-hmm. Collegiate Nationals. Mm-hmm. And I got 11th, I dropped my chain on that big hill coming out of transition. Mm-hmm. But I was a top guy in the Naval Academy team. And I thought, hey, maybe there's something here. Maybe I can be good at this. And that's where I said, okay, I'm gonna stop swimming, even though I had some of my best races at the end of that year, stop swimming and said, okay, let's go all in on triathlon. Interesting. Yeah. Um, prior to that, uh, you you had mentioned to me that you you had pursued like dive school for yeah. a minute. Yeah. Like, so, tell me what happened. <laughs> okay. So I've never told this story, Rich. So it's it's All right. pretty embarrassing. But yeah, I went to Berkeley. Um, you know, got my master's in ocean engineering mm-hmm. there, and I had service selected when I was still at the academy, special operations, which is explosive ordnance disposal, right. and part of that is doing the EOD dive training. So I go to my command and I had already found like the best situation ever where I'd had the support from Navy sports uh, and my commanding officer to pursue the Olympic dream. Mm -hmm. So I had convinced the Navy to be like, all right, this guy's got something special. I'd won the armed forces uh, national championship in triathlon. Like, okay, we're gonna support this guy. But I still had to go to dive school first and do that. So I come from the Olympic Training Center, finish up the season, and I'm like, "So you're, hold on, just sorry to interrupt." <laughs> there's a lot you, going like, on. There's a lot going you, on here. I told you. All that. right, the Navy deployed you to the Olympic Training Center. They did. Yeah, like you were you were officially like in you know an armed service uh, officcer, but you were there to just train triathlon yep. and be at the Olympic Training Center. Okay, that was yeah. It. it was uh, more of a. You're like being paid or like. <laughs> yeah, you're normal. You're, I was still an ensign, or I was like maybe a lieutenant yeah. JG at that point because the right. first couple uh, promotions are automatic. But uh, the army, uh, army and air force have world class athlete programs. Yeah, of course. And yeah. uh, Fort Carson, at, mm-hmm. outside of Colorado Springs, is where the army is based. Yeah. Navy didn't have that, so I had to kind of try to and, make well, one. And the air force academy, of course, being in Colorado right there, Springs. Yeah. yeah. So actually, you know what happened, Rich? Is um, I put together this like packet promotions packet and I sent it to the head of Navy sports. It was, I mean, professionally done. Uh-huh. And uh, the Navy personnel office is in all places is in um, Millington, Tennessee, but it lands on uh, his desk. And just like, as he's looking at it, the top ranked EOD guy on the West coast, who is going to be my like head honcho boss walks mm-hmm. by his door and he says, sir, take a look at this. And uh, Captain Hines looked at it. He's like, this is awesome. Like, these is 
type of people we want in the Navy. Like, let's yeah. let's promote this. So, bam! All of a sudden, I'm there. You go. You know, I'm heading to Colorado Springs. Sort of as a, and you know, from a promotional perspective, like you're like a poster boy exactly, right, for yeah. recruiting, et cetera. So we do PR yeah. and things like that. I would go to dive tanks and uh -huh. like in Denver and- um, But let's talk about the dive, the dive school. school yeah. <laughs> so I go there, I'm, I'm a little overconfident. I'm like, I'm super fit, I'm yeah. you know, finished in the race season, but I didn't really prepare properly, which I should have known, right? Mm -hmm. And I get there and all the instructors are just waiting for me. They're like, they want to oh, fail you so want, badly. Yeah. Not right? only my junior officer, yeah. <laughs> and these are all senior enlisted. So these guys are like, they're uh -huh. in it. They know everything. And they're like, ah, oh, look at this little run. Um, but I'm also like, I'm almost like the boss's pet too, right? Like mm. his, his project. So there, I had a target on my back, which I didn't know at the time. I was oblivious. Yeah. I'm just like, do, 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 do. So I get up uh, for the physical, the physical test at the start of dive school. And I go and I do my pull-ups. And I have a, I have a six, six wingspan and I'm barely six feet tall. So I'm like yeah. kind of misproportioned, not great for doing pull-ups. Yeah. And uh, I do my pull-ups, I get off the bar, I do like one or two extra over the minimum, which I think was eight or nine. And uh, they're like, you failed. I'm like, what? I'm like, yeah, no, yeah. Like three of those didn't count. Your chin didn't go all the way over the bar. I'm like, mm. you didn't tell me that. Like, I didn't know and they're like, you're off the bar. Like, and they're just kind of messing with me. Uh -huh. So they're like, okay, well, you gotta like do a retest. And if like, if you fail the retest, you're out. So then I kind of like panic, I get in panic mode. I got two days or whatever. It's the weekend, all the other guys are going off and partying over the weekend. Uh -huh. And I'm just like trying to do pull-ups all weekend. Well, it's like the worst thing to do, yeah. right? So <laughs> you show up exhausted. I, I yeah. show up to the retest, I can barely Sore. lift my arms. And I didn't do it, I, I, I didn't do it, I didn't uh -huh. get there. And I had to go to the board and basically they're like, all right, yeah, we have to boot you out. But at the same time, they're all scratching their heads because like they're like, oh, this this went terribly wrong. Like we weren't mm. expecting this guy who top of his class at the academy. Yeah. And, you know, professional athlete, like this is a weird situation, right? So I get political booted out. firestorm. Yeah, yeah. I get booted out and I'm like, ah, I don't Did you know do the breath hold stuff and all the other aspects of the test though? Uh, this is like before all that. Oh, okay. Yeah, this so is, that, this is like a precursor to yeah, get like to that. Yeah, it was like right at the beginning, yeah. Um, <laughs> so it's like you're, like, you're revolving door, like you're <laughs> you in and you're the out. Gate. Yeah, <laughs> like, all right. So uh -huh. I'm, like, I'm like, I'm shocked, they're shocked. Uh -huh. I'm like, I don't know what's gonna happen. Like, am I just gonna go to the fleet and like have to like be a surface warfare officer? I, I don't know. Uh-huh. Luckily, the, uh, they made an exception. Like, all right, we're gonna like, this is- Don't tell anyone. Yeah, yeah, just, <laughs> we're gonna put you back in the next class. Uh -huh. So I went back to my command in Coronado um, for, I don't know, it was eight weeks or whatever. And like, they're like, just, your only job is just right. go to the pull-up bar outside the building and just make sure you do this. Mm. So I ended up going back and I had some redemption. Um, you know, I did, I don't know, I did way more than I needed to do. And I ended up, um, you know, I was a class leader and ended up being the honor graduate. So the top graduate in the class. Uh. But I cool. still, oh man, along the way that those those eight weeks, however long class was, oh man, I had yeah. everybody after me. I remember we were, um, you know, they, you have to pass all these tests like breath hold and things like mm -hmm. that. And they have one where they just beat the crud out of you when you're on the bottom with your tank on. They pull your tank off, they tie all your tubes, you rip all your stuff off yeah. and you got to sort it all out. And the master chief like of the dive school, he's like, uh, my buddy was up top and they're like, all right, who's up next? Like O'Donnell, he's like, uh, I got him, uh -huh. I got him. So he comes, he goes, does a number on me and writes on the little chalkboard. Like I finally get my, uh, my mask back on, he writes on the chalkboard 
or the try race board. Good luck. Mm. Like, good luck with this one. And I did it and I got through it and he's like, okay, all right. This, you know, maybe this guy's okay. And <laughs> Right, you, get, you had to do it with the target on your back. Yeah, and I actually got uh, amazing letters from my two, um, the two uh, instructors in my class are like, really, yeah. thank you. Like, you did an amazing job. We really appreciate you sticking that through. And so it all, all you know, all's well that ends well, mm. but it was, it was hairy. Yeah, and, and uh, any thought of, of kind of, you know, joining the special forces or being SEAL or anything like that. I was the only I was the only guy on the tri team my senior year, which was probably five or six of us that didn't go SEALs. Uh-huh. I was the only all my all they my buddies all, they are all went SEAL. Yep, yeah, they're all Team Six guys now, or mm-hmm. you know they're getting out and stuff. But it's an interesting kind of time that we're in, and, and maybe this has a lot to do with like social media and the internet. But um, you know the 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 kind of um, Ascension of of the special ops officer as as you know kind of a celebrity you know what I mean like whether it's books that are being written or just um, people that you know impart wisdom on podcasts like there's a yeah. lot of energy around you know SEAL Team Six guys etc. Yeah. Um, and it's cool it's cool to like learn from these guys and and uh, you know try to you know extract from their experience something that's that's actionable but. Um, as somebody who you know has a background in this, like how do you like what is your perspective on all of that? How do you look at all of that? Uh, like whether it's you know Goggins or Jocko Willink and yeah, these yeah. guys that are you know that are out there and you know people love these guys. Yeah. And Goggins also like being, you know he you know part of his career was you know not dissimilar in that he was sort of a you know kind of on tour. Yep. Doing a lot of talks, you know, on behalf of the Navy, and there's that famous, you know, commercial that he shot where he's running. You yeah. know, like I think they even aired that during Iron Man. You know, and yeah, at um, one point I think before I started doing Kona, they I think they had some of the seals like they sponsored the race and they had seals like drop in. He was one of those guys. Oh yeah, and then they did the race, right? Yeah, they parachuted into the swim. Start. Yeah, exactly. I think he was one of those guys that did it. Did, yeah, I did that that year. It's hard yeah. because you get you get split like. Split support, you know, mm. people think it's awesome, but then, you know, in the service and other people are like, oh, you're not doing your job that you were supposed to do. Right. Um, so that's really right. Tough. You're, you're like, you're the, the shiny thing that they're dangling yeah. in front of other people while we're actually out here like doing the gig. Right, exactly. Yeah. But I mean, there's value. I think one of the biggest mistakes the Navy made was David Robinson back in the day. Oh, yeah. They should have had him in his whites going into every game. Yeah. Like, imagine that. He's, he's got his whites on, like, officer right. and gentleman, you know, going into the arenas. Like, there was, there's value to that. And mm-hmm. I mean, there's, Duty can be served in so many different ways. And I actually really struggled with that when I got out of the Navy. Um, my time was up at the end of 08. I just missed the um, Olympic team by a couple spots at trials. Mm-hmm. And I felt guilty that I, I didn't do what I was supposed to do in the Navy. You know, I'd signed up to be a EOD officer and I'd gone and done this crazy path and they had supported me so well. And it, it really, it was eating at me, like, what should I do? And luckily my department head, um, Kevin Childry, who had been actually, when in his early enlisted days, um, actually did triathlon like professionally for mm. a little while. And he sat me down and he's like, Tim, uh, you've, like, you don't write your own orders. You've done what we've asked you to do. By the way, you're way behind your year group. You're never going to get promoted past like 04, uh-huh. uh, lieutenant commander. So you've kind of shot yourself in the foot with your Navy career. And 
you have potential to do something great in triathlon. So don't let don't let the thought of you know being here to serve in another way holds you back. Like you've done what we've asked you to do. Now go uh-huh. follow your dream. And uh, that was a really big moment for me. Yeah. And is that that informs uh, you know like back to that thing of like okay you, you know clearly like you put a lot of thought into the kit that you wear and all of that yeah. so so like allegiance to that sensibility is part of the reason why yeah. you know like you you kind of comport yourself the way that you do absolutely yeah. i mean i look at triathlon as a gift that the men and women of our armed services really gave me you know without the support of the navy when i was in the navy or even learning about triathlon when i was at the naval academy my life would be completely different. I mean, yeah. I wouldn't have my wife or kids right now, right? I mean, yeah. if I wasn't in the sport, that it all stems from that. Uh, so I am uh, yeah, eternally grateful to uh, yeah. our armed services and and everybody that yeah, are, cool. are part of it. It's cool. Um, you know, when when the day of retirement comes, like, what is that? Do you have any sense of what that looks like for you? I mean, are you gonna are you gonna like you know dig into that engineering <laughs> background, yeah, <no. laughs> or you know, are you gonna? I'm gonna give you a little piece of like, advice, Rich. If, if you see a boat that says designed by Tim ships? O'Donnell, yeah, don't, do not step <laughs> okay. on a boat that says it's designed okay. by me, all right? I don't. All right. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm well past that. I look at my engineering I'm background. I'm confident that if you decided to <laughs> explore that, that it would be it a would safe work, boat. It would work, yeah. No, I'm, 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 it'd be too, I'm too far removed from uh-huh. that. Uh, I think the engineering piece of my education is great for problem solving, which has really played well into what I, yeah. Ironman racing, I mean, it's all, giant puzzle, right? There's so many different things you're trying to put together on the fly when you're out mm-hmm. there racing. I don't know. I mean, I want to do, I want to put the energy into triathlon, into something else and try to have that success. Uh, I don't really fully know what that is yet. Yeah. Uh, Randy and I are going to start at, um, uh, like an age group coaching mm-hmm. business focused on, we won't be, we're not going to be high performance coaches. We're not going to look to coach um, the next rainy, you know, Ironman World yeah. Championship. We've seen, we've looked for balance as much as we can in being professional athletes. And we've seen how hard triathlon can be on families, particularly age group families, when you're working jobs, you have kids, and then you're trying to train for an Ironman. Mm-hmm. So yeah, we're looking to, okay, next step is let's integrate triathlon into into people's lifestyle. So it's a healthy part, you know? You know, there's that right. saying, like, if you're not, if you're still married, you're not training hard enough. Yeah. <laughs> like, we don't want that. Yarn man widow. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I know. So that's that's gonna be kind of a big, I think, part of the next step because we do want to stay connected to the sport. Uh-huh. Um, on top of that, I'd love to get into public speaking. I think that would yeah. be really fun. I and think then, you're really uh, good at that. Thanks, yeah. And I've been messing around with some real estate investment stuff that I think will probably be uh-huh. part of it too. Cool. Um, what is what is the you know on that coaching tip? Like, what is the advice that you would give the you know amateur, the enthusiastic amateur? Like, you've been to a million races, a million yep. Ironmans. You've seen these people out there. Like, what are the common th- mistakes that you see people making that are easily avoidable? Like, if you have a minute, just be like, yep. please stop doing this yeah. thing that I always see people doing. Yeah. Overtraining, Rich. Everybody <laughs> overtrains. Yeah. Like, I mean, I understand if. You're, you are trying to be a professional and, and get there. Like you got to put the work in. Mm-hmm. But if if you're if you're overtrained for what you all the other stuff you have in your lifestyle, you're going to hit the race course yeah. unprepared in, in the sense of um, you know just not being able to access the work you've done. And that and get a coach. 
um, or get on a program mm -hmm. and find some people around you that you can train with and share the enthusiasm, enjoyment with. And talk about it with your family. You know, don't make yeah. those plans by yourself. Make them, make them as a family. It's definitely a joint. Uh, it is. Everybody's got to invest in it, right? <laughs> Everybody has to be bought in, or it's not going to go well. Yeah. Right. And if you're going to try to train 20, 25 hours a week, and you have kids and a job and all of that, yeah. I mean, it's tough, man. Where, where did you max out on training hours back in the day? I mean, the most. The most. Yeah, yeah. I mean, maybe like short periods of like 22 to 25, but a lot of 20 hour weeks and then probably the vast majority 15 hour weeks. Yeah. And that was freaking hard. Like that's not sustainable. No. You yeah. know? So yeah, if you're a pro, if you're Gustav and Christian yeah. and you don't have girlfriends and like you're, pretty, you're just like, you're in your twenties and this is what yeah. you do, great. You know, most people that is not, you know, that's not gonna work. <laughs> so stop taking your tip from that, yeah, you know, yeah. and try to figure out how to root what you're trying to accomplish balanced against the other things that you that are valuable in your yeah. life. And I think you can put more energy at, at that level for an age competitor wanting to really enjoy the sport, put more energy into the, some of the other details, you know, get a proper bike fit mm. or, you know, learn about nutrition, things like that. Like make yourself as efficient as possible. So your success can come from something else other than just training 20 yeah. or 25 hours a week. Yeah, you know? yeah. and, and the, the training being for the most part, you know, joyous and nourishing as opposed to draining and, you know, denigrating yeah. to the other aspects of your life. I was um, talking to a group athlete a couple of weeks ago and she had like full on trained for this Ironman, was overtrained, did horrible, uh, got on a separate program that was like 10 hours a week, 12 hours a week mm -hmm. and ended up the next year. Doing better. Doing so much better. Yeah. And she enjoyed it. Mm -hmm. You know, who's great on that is, uh, is Gordo Byrne. Yeah, I'm sure you know Gordo. Everybody in Boulder knows everyone, Oh yeah, right? yep. Gordo like, and Monica, great people. so wise. Yep. Yeah, amazing. Um, the last thing I wanna talk to you about before I let you go is, is uh, kind of the current state of the union of, of triathlon, professional triathlon. Um, and and um, this issue of, of athlete representation in sport, which I think you know, you know, you're very immersed in in terms of triathlon, but also I think is, is, um, uh, you know, relatable outside of just triathlon itself. Like, like the the role or the like the power dynamic between the athlete and the organizations that you know kind of um, control the trajectory of an of a professional athlete's career. Yeah, I've been uh, involved in some form since 2014 of the athletes trying to um, put themselves in a better position. And it's it's not, it's never been about like trying to go against Ironman or, mm -hmm. you know, oppose them. Uh, Rennie and I have made our careers really off of Ironman, right? Like without Ironman. It's gonna be very politic, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Dancing a good lineup. Navy man. I'll <laughs> say what you can't say, which is that like the WTC, <laughs> All right, no, I'm not gonna, <laughs> I mean, it's a massive conglomerate. Right. Uh, it makes a lot of money hosting a lot of races. Uh, it's very profitable in what it does. And it's a beautiful thing in that it allows, you know, a massive number of amateurs to compete alongside professional 
yep. professionals in the sport, which is a really cool thing. You know, I think it's amazing. But I think that the sport, you know, like really, you know, caters to that amateur experience right. in a in a beautiful way, but does not do enough to take care of the professionals who are dedicating their life to elite performance, especially in a sport where you can only compete at the at, at your peak a couple times a right. year. Like yeah. how many Ironmans can you do? Yeah, and yeah. these purses don't cut it. And the parity between <laughs> men and women, like there's so many problems here that need to be solved. Yeah, and I think it all starts with the fact that they're an event company, right? They aren't like, yeah, they're like we're almost a side. It's show, not that right? different than like putting on concerts. You know, the fact that it's sports almost is. But they, I mean, they, they'll they'll sell out, and this is probably their argument. They'll sell out a an Ironman that they're there's without a pro race, right? So it's mm-hmm. all it's almost always like, do they need pros? And that's because we haven't been packaged as a product that we can sell. You know, we haven't been packaged as as entertainment. And I think, I mean. It's like, why was everybody so mad at Lance with all this stuff? It's because he was seen as inspiration, not entertainment, right? People didn't look to him as an entertainment feature like the NFL guys that are, you know, pounding each other and all, you know, doing stuff behind mm-hmm. the scenes or whatever. Uh, and I think we're kind of, we've been stuck in that inspiration role. And that's why it is awesome that we're interacting with the age group um, community at, at Ironmans, but it doesn't necessarily help us grow the sport professionally or even on on the amateur level. Mm-hmm. And that's where I think we got something really interesting with the PTO right now. It's because we're putting together a, a package of races focused on professionals that we can put out there. I mean, there's 22, 23 million uh, views uh, on television last year of PTO events. Mm-hmm. So this is something we haven't done before, being able to focus on the pros to help kind of grow that. And it's been hard be, we had to bring together a partnership, right? There's investors and then there's the athletes and we got to rally athletes. It's a hard situation for the athletes because we're all, it's a self sport, um, kind of a, almost a selfish sport. And we've never had anybody around long enough to really believe in, right? Like there's always these monies coming in like a Tri Dubai or like yeah. American Interbank where like there's a some cash thrown at the athletes and everybody grabs as much as they can and they think it's just going to disappear. So they never really uh, invest in it. But now we're a partnership, you know, we own half of the PTO as athletes. Mm-hmm. So we're putting, we're, it's sweat equity for us. We need to get behind it and we need to make sure this thing succeeds. We need to get the same athletes consistently racing each other on these big stages with big prize money. And we need to get to the point where you're not losing money just to show up to a race. And that's where the sport is at right now. I mean, uh, if yeah, it's super expensive to travel yeah. to all these exotic locations and to like bring your bike and you know stay in hotels yeah. and all of that, and then the prize money doesn't even cover the, cover the, the travel. travel expenses. Yeah. So like this, the, it makes no sense. And so it's incumbent upon the athlete to go out and get their own sponsorships outside of prize money, yeah. uh, which you know like a lot of these companies within multi-sport, like, yeah, they'll give you a bike or they'll give you product, but like not a lot of money is being thrown around unless you're at the very highest level. And that's yeah. reserved for like, I don't know, five or six people yeah. and everybody else, good luck. And the, and now we have even more talent that's worth the money, mm-hmm. but the, the pie's not any bigger, right? I mean, yeah. when you talk about endemic, you know, bike companies, what is, shoe so companies. if you get, if you win Kona and you're a man, what do you get? And if you're a woman, what do you get? Uh, the prize money is equal. 
It is. Yeah. What is it like 250 or something? Uh, like no, that? I think the win is like 125. 125? Yeah. 125,000. Yeah, yeah. I know. For the Ironman World Championship. Yeah. But if you get. What is I, it if you win, you know, like, I don't know, the, you know, PGA? <laughs> I mean, there's. Augusta. There's like a 600, 100th ranked, like tennis players or are making 600 yeah, grand. The Australian you know, like, Open or whatever. Yeah. You know, like, yeah, it doesn't make, it doesn't make any sense. But so, we, need to, we need to be able to bring the money in, particularly sure. from getting exposure on television to mm. bring in some of these other partners beyond the sport, banks, you know, car companies. What is the advertising revenue that NBC garners from their Ironman broadcast? I mean, it's gotta be, cause that's always like an Emmy winning, you know, production. Right, but I believe they pay for the television time. So yeah, they're paying the WTC for no, the no, rights no, no. to I believe, broadcast. I, I believe Ironman pays them to, uh, to get the, interesting. to buy the, they buy the, they buy the airtime and then whatever sponsor, whatever commercials they air, they bring back into them to, they they keep it, right? I see. That's not a great model for, no. Exp, like if you want to generate revenue off of selling the sport as entertainment, you got to yeah. be bringing in a lot more. Well, and also there. now that it's being live streamed, you know, how valuable is the broadcast when it's however many months later right. when they finally yeah. air it? Yeah, that's, you know, and it's, <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's, they're hard it used races to be a to big capture. thing. Like, I don't, is it still a big thing? I think they still, it's, it's more of kind of that documentary style though, mm -hmm. versus like a true race event, right? Right, you're not watching it to see who wins, you're watching it for the pageantry yep. of the, yeah. Yep. So the PTO, that stands for Professional Triathlete Organization. Correct, yep. So it's sort of a, a quasi kind of collective bargaining organization, but also uh, an event, you know, production company like an event, you're you're creating these races right. right that are that are designed for uh like audience engagement that are kind of you know playing around a little bit with yeah. the traditional format of what a triathlon race is and um to develop stories too right mm -hmm. like the nba really grew when magic johnson and larry bird came in and they had this story this you know ncaa championship rivalry coming into the nba uh you know Magic, very colorful character. Uh -huh. Larry Bird, kind of the curmudgeon, like you know, just hard worker guy. And yeah, it was it was the dynamics was awesome, right? And that being able to tell stories really lifted the sport. Um, it's not just about the competition; it's about the stories and and uh, and the rivalries and things like that. And you got to be able to create uh, an emotional connection with the individuals. Absolutely, so, yeah, you, gotta, you wanna root for somebody, right? Yeah, whether it's, you know, Dave Scott and Mark Allen racing toe to toe, like who are we, you know, why are we watching this? Why yeah. do we care about who these people are? And if it only comes like Kona once a year on the television mm -hmm. and you see Jan or Rini, whoever it is, like once a year, you, you need to have that storyline and you need to that consistency. You need to be seeing these athletes face each other, you know, every other week or every couple of weeks. And, and you need to say that, see that play out with a definitive winner at the end. Uh, I think that'll be mm -hmm. be super um, important too. And it's it's not, it can't be a charity either. Like this whole PTO endeavor is, isn't a charity, it's a partnership, right? I mean, if you just hand out money to athletes, I mean, the, the prize money that the PTO has handed out in the last couple of years is insane. I mean, $2 million uh, end of year bonus rankings pool mm. and wow. a million dollar um, prize purses at the uh, US Open and the Canadian, uh, Canadian Open. This is, it's a big deal for that's the sport. That's huge. Yeah, it that's is, huge progress. We have to be a business. We have to be right. able to cover that. Um, you know, and the investors are awesome, but they're they're not they're they're here to make money off a of business too, right. right? They they're not here to just give us handouts. 
Yeah, there has been, there is a history of like kind of money coming in and and like yeah. the Bahrain, there's the whole Bahrain right, thing. Right. Like, is that still a thing? Like, I think it is. Is it? Yeah. Um, and then what's the- uh, But when, the, when those guys lose interest, <laughs> the money goes somewhere, I was like, oh, actually right. I wanna follow cycling now. So I'm well, gonna put this I into a cycling like team. The Crown Prince was super into triathlon. And yep. so it was just like a pet project for him. Absolutely. But, uh, but you know, I don't know, a lot of money seemed to come into the sport. And then what's the other series where there's like a Russian oligarch involved? Like the, uh, the Super Mal League. Yeah, Super, Super League, League right? right? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and Maca. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Maca's involved with that, okay. <laughs> uh, yeah, like I think they bought the Malibu Triathlon. So I was down there the other, you know, like yep. it's- and, and They did, yeah. I think what's successful about that is, you know, oligarch aside, is playing with the format, like the way that they kind of, you know, mix it up and, and try to make it more interesting for, you know, somebody who's trying to just witness and pay attention, like the fan. Absolutely, and yeah. I think like you get someone that hasn't seen like um, Olympic, like world triathlon racing. And the first thing they'll say is from just being a casual viewer, it's like, oh, that mixed relay, that's really cool. Mm. You know, those, so right. there is some tinkering to do with, formats and engagement to um, right. to really make it powerful. But I think it, it comes down to the, yeah, the athletes really need to understand that if you wanna make this work, then you have to help create this business, which is the races, right? Yeah. And from that, we can generate revenue that then can support athlete growth and you know developing pipelines for up and coming athletes, right? And you know, sub-series and things like that, where mm -hmm. you can really start to uh, put a foundation under the sport to successfully grow in the long term. Right. So so when you look at golf, tennis, you know, some of these other sports where you know like the athletes do quite well, um you know, what's still missing in try like where where's the, you know, so you're you're here in town because you had a PTO meeting, right? right. Like a yep. board meeting, right? So what do you guys talk about? Like what are you working on establishing to bridge the gap between kind of where triathlon is versus these other sports where the athletes are 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 you know kind of being accorded pay and respect in a in a manner in a manner that seems you know more on parity with what they deserve. Um, that's a great question, Rich. And we actually Chris Kermode has um, been brought on. He's the current chairman running the show, and he's from the tennis world. He's mm. you know running the ATP for a long time, so he he sees the value in this, and he wouldn't. He's got a reputation that he wants to uphold too, right? He's not yeah. going to hop onto a sinking ship, right? He's here to make this thing work. I wish I could tell you more about what we yeah, discussed. It's all but, private. But yeah. <laughs> non, that non-disclosure. Right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but rest assured, yeah, there is a, a great plan for um, for the future. It's uh, cool. I mean, I feel like the next crop, we were talking about this changing of the guard at, at Kona, like the younger athlete, like these are, these are internet native people who grew up with social media and they intuitively understand that as professionals, like their image and their kind of like their, you know, I hate that word brand or whatever, like it's, they have to shoulder the responsibility of, of you know, creating interest in what it is that they're doing. And that's just part of their DNA. Whereas older people like your generation, certainly, you know, my, you know, I'm way older, uh, you know, that was something that that people had to learn or kind of resisted or or didn't think that they had to do. But that's just part of the mentality. It's like, oh, you're a professional. Okay, here's what you need to do. Like you'll get sponsors because you have a certain number of people on Instagram who care about the storytelling that you're doing. And you know how to tell a story to get people interested so that when you are racing, you have a fan base and that, you know, like sort of scaled up creates a lot more interest in the sport, which ultimately will bring more right. eyeballs and money and all of that into it. 
Yeah, and it, it starts from the top. We have to really engage those top athletes, right? The young guys, mm-hmm. the Norwegians. Because yeah, you see Gustav and Christian yep. and Sam and the, like, you know, they, they, those guys know what they're doing yeah. online. And we can't, we can't grow and, unless we get the top to really, you know, mm-hmm. get on board. And then, you know, once we get it all established, it, it, everything trickles down, right? Yeah. Um, and then we can start supporting development, things like that. But Rini and I joke, we've been around a long time, right? We, we joke that we signed up to be professional athletes, but now we're just social media influencers. <laughs> I mean, the shift has been insane, right? And, yeah. and we struggle with it so much. The Tim so and Rini much. show, I know. the YouTubers. <laughs> we, we, so we were kind of one of the first uh-huh. in, the, in, the, uh, in our sport to get on that. Yeah. And we're like, ah, like, we don't, like, I don't know if this is what we want to do. Yeah. You know? and so, and, but then we kind of, the floodgates opened with all the other athletes. Um, but hey, yeah, I mean, I mean, Lionel's channel is right. probably gets more views than, you know, than like an Ironman No, I know, yeah, right? yeah. It's really smart, you know? And, you know, ultimately like you develop, however many people are interested in whatever it is you're sharing, those, those people start to care about you. Yeah. You know, like that's, that's important. That, I feel like that is part of the job, you know? It, it definitely is. Yeah. And I think Rini and I, we're good about being able to kind of shift a little bit. And yeah. I mean, we, the old days, you just, if you, you know, you put a logo on a kit, and you try right. to get on a magazine cover. <laughs> That's and then done. you're good, you're, you're done. <laughs> no, you do yeah. one booth appearance at a race and you're yeah. done. Those days are long <laughs> Those, gone. Uh, yeah, they're so far gone. But, um, uh, and, and probably for the better, like what is the value proposition of that? I don't you know, know what I, I mean? Yeah. I don't like, it doesn't really make sense. And I think there's still a lot of companies that are stuck in that paradigm mm-hmm. and they don't understand like, that really doesn't matter. You know, what matters is, who really cares about what you're doing? Like whether you get fifth or first or 10th yep. is much less important than, you know, how emotionally attached, you know, people out in the world are yep. to what it is that you have to share with them. Yeah, and it's it's almost this kind of like butting of heads between story and performance, right? Yeah. They don't always You have align. to perform. You still have to perform. Like it can't Yeah, some people don't. I mean, do you have to like, win? I don't know, yeah. you know. Yeah, or I mean like if you do if you have the credibility of if you have a record of performance, you have the credibility. Mm-hmm. That's you know obviously a great spot. But right. Yeah. So, so what's the future of the Tim and Rennie show on YouTube? <laughs> we we got to get Kenny back. We're like Kenny, we need you. Does he live in Boulder? He does live like in Boulder. A, yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. We we made the mistake though. We um, you know, we want everybody to grow around us too. So like yeah. we you know connected a lot of partners and stuff. And then our partners start using them so much. Uh huh. Like. Like, hey, we still need some Kenny time too. Yeah, we're like, yeah, come yeah. on, where's our Kenny? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you got to get back on that. Yeah, no, we're gonna. Uh, we'd like to, and I, it'd be. I think we have a lot to share with this kind of transition period too, mm-hmm. right? It's not all about racing anymore for us. You know, we're parents. We're figuring out what what's the rest of our life going to look like, and yeah. I think that's a compelling story to to our audience. Yeah, good man. Are you going to um, come out and be on an episode of the show? I would love to. Yeah, all right. I'd be, honor, I'd be honored to. <laughs> Next I'd time you're in Boulder. To. Yeah, for sure. Um, that's a promise. <laughs> and if Rennie, that seat is wide open for Rennie anytime she wants to come. Oh yeah, she'll, um, we'll, get, we'll get her out of- uh, um, I used to see, like when Siri had her group out here that she was training, I think I think Rennie was part of that. Like she was, was living yeah. out here, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah so I would see them like over in, in um, Malibu Creek State Park, they would do a run loop in there, and and she would they would be they would go ride as a peloton, and she would like drive behind them. Or yeah. you know, I used to see them out. Like and you know, Siri, um, she bought a pool. She did. Yeah, they had a pool. They had like a like one of those like above ground like twenty five meter. Oh, like, I think I port- remember you know, those kind of portable seeing pools. something about that. Yeah, and it yeah. wasn't heated though. Renee was, said it was so cold. Like it was just, <laughs> <laughs> they 
It'd be up at, at some, yeah. I don't know where it was, but. But now she, uh, she like has a horse ranch Yeah, she has a horse rescue. Colorado I mean, her and or, Beck are doing an amazing yeah. job with uh-huh. that. I mean, they're yeah. doing some real good up there. It's cool. Yeah. Um, well, it's great to talk to you, man. Yeah, thanks, I Rich. I really it. appreciate being here. This is awesome. Um, any kind of like last words for, you know, the unsuspecting uh, person out there who might be uh, harboring a little bit of uh, arterial plaque or yeah. the... Uh, <laughs> The aspiring Ironman athlete who's, you know, spending too much time training and not enough time at home. Like I don't know. Where do you where do you want what do you want to leave us with? Yeah, I just think um, life is is precious and it goes by quickly. So mm. just make sure you're you're doing everything you can to to enjoy the moment and the people around you and um, everything you can to make sure you're around for as long as you can be as well. Yeah, I appreciate it. I think your story is really powerful and uh, it's just, you know, it's it's so extreme uh, that, you know, once you hear it or, you know, watch the videos or whatever, you can't, it doesn't leave your consciousness. And it, and it really like, as somebody who, you know, look, I care a lot about my health, but it's inspired me to go and, you know, I haven't been, I haven't gotten a calcium test in a couple of years. Like I really should go and, and check that. And I think everybody should. And I think, you know, you're in a position to really, you know, uh, you know spread um, a message that's not only powerful. I mean, let's face it, like heart attacks, that's the number one killer. Like yeah. this is the thing that like, you know, by and large, most people are gonna die from, yep. right? It is the number one killer so, for men and women in the US. Yeah. I mean, it's, yeah, it's real. And yeah, it's there's a, no better investment is, than our, us, ourselves and our bodies, right? Like, it is as serious as a heart attack. It is. <laughs> there we go. Um, cool. Well, uh, come back and talk to me again sometime. This was super fun. I'll let you know next time I'm, I'm in uh, Boulder. I want to come in. I, I know the house from the videos. Yes. So now I got to go see knows it where for live. myself. I don't know if that's good or not. But, um, but uh, much luck to you. And, and uh, if there's anything I can do uh, for you, I'm at your service. Thanks, Rich. Yeah, cheers. Peace. That's it for today. Thank you for listening. I truly hope you enjoyed the conversation. To learn more about today's guest, including links and resources related to everything discussed today, visit the episode page at richroll.com where you can find the entire podcast archive, as well as podcast merch, my books, Finding Ultra, Voicing Change in the Plant Power Way, as well as the Plant Power Meal Planner at meals.richroll.com. If you'd like to support the podcast, the easiest and most impactful thing you can do is to subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, on Spotify, and on YouTube and leave a review and or comment. Supporting the sponsors who support the show is also important and appreciated. And sharing the show or your favorite episode with friends or on social media is of course, awesome and very helpful. And finally, for podcast updates, special offers on books, the meal planner and other subjects, please subscribe to our newsletter, which you can find on the footer of any page at richroll.com. Today's show was produced and engineered by Jason Camiolo with additional audio engineering by Kale Curtis. The video edition of the podcast was created by Blake Curtis with assistance by our creative director, Dan Drake. Portraits by Davy Greenberg, graphic and social media assets courtesy of Daniel Solis, as well as Dan Drake. Thank you, Georgia Whaley for copywriting and website management. And of course, our theme music was created by Tyler Pyatt, Trapper Pyatt, and Harry Mathis. 
Appreciate the love, love the support. See you back here soon. Peace, plants, namaste. Yeah.